Ready? Yep. It's true. I'd walk across the earth just to hear him. I'm Brendan Madigan. I'm excited to welcome you back to Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. Episode two of our third season features veteran heli ski guide Lel Tone. Known as a consummate local hero here in North Lake Tahoe, California, Lel has been a ski patroller at Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows for over 24 years. During this time, She has become a leading authority as an instructor for the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education and co-founded the popular women's avalanche safety clinic, SafeAs. She has also been an Alaska fishing guide, has beaten a Navy SEAL on a reality television show, worked a pit crew for off-road motorcycle races, and guided the biggest names in the ski and snowboard business with Warren Miller. You might think that someone with this type of pedigree would be burly and perhaps unapproachable. On the contrary, Tone carries herself with an open heart and a wonderful degree of kindness and compassion rarely seen in this day and age. I hope you enjoy an insightful conversation with one of the most badass, intelligent, and compassionate people to ever grace the ski industry. pretty unorthodox childhood yeah well I would I wouldn't say it's unorthodox because there's so many people from the United States that live here currently that have way more diverse boundary or backgrounds than I did but yes um, my dad was the president of an American college in Switzerland in Lugano which is in the Italian part and young I mean I think about it you know, when I was in college, I was like, holy smokes, my dad was the president of a college and he was in his late 20s, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> the college girls must have loved him. <laughs> but we were in Lugano during the school year. So my brother and I would go back and forth between Canada. My family has a little fishing uh, camp Canada in Canada and Quebec. So we would go back and forth summers in Quebec and then school year in Switzerland. So... I feel super fortunate to have been able to grow up in Switzerland of all places and with all that rich culture and especially ski culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously at the time, I think we were there until I was 10 years old and then moved back to Massachusetts so my dad could go to MIT mm-hmm. um, to their Sloan School of Business. But that brought us to the East Coast. Right. And you're originally from... New York? Well, I was born in New York and then was kind of put on a plane. You know, how things were in the 70s. Yeah, Yeah. they're smoking on planes Mm -hmm. and you can throw your infants on planes when they're tiny. (laughs) There's, you know, those things going on. So, yeah, Yeah. I was pretty much right out of the oven and onto a plane and over to Switzerland. Right. Yeah. So your dad's a pretty bright guy. He is. And, you know, the thing that I've admired so much about him is that he, a lot of people get into one field 
and they stay in that field for you know most of their adult lives and he you know has been in education and he was even an actor when he was in his 20s you know um both my grandparents were actors in hollywood and so you know he had his hand at that then he went back to mit and he was in finance but he's always been a great example to me that you need to keep things fresh and you can always learn and you know in life you can go in a totally different direction if you set your mind to it. You right, know? yeah. And yeah. where did he grow up? He actually grew up in L.A., in mm-hmm. Hollywood. In fact, in Hollywood Hills, I think in Beverly Hills, there's a street named after my grandmother, Wallace Ridge, huh. that she lived on. But, yeah. And ironically enough, growing up in that world, I think he realized he wanted to get away from it and went almost as far as Switzerland to get away from that kind of Hollywood upbringing that he wasn't super fond of. And so it was funny a few years ago, I was like, dad, isn't it ironic that both of your kids ended up like back in the West at one point, my brother was living in LA and Mm -hmm. I was in Tahoe. I was like, can you believe that your kids have migrated back to where you started and where you left from, you know? And where's he living now? He is, uh, between Florida and Quebec. Okay. Yeah, back and forth. Cool. Depending on the season. Yeah. And that thing. He's re- he's retired now. Right. Yeah. And you have one brother. One brother, a younger brother. Younger brother. Yeah, three years younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you guys are close, I'm assuming. Very close. You know, I think when I, you know, my mom died when I was 15, and that can do one of two things to families. Uh, you know, when there's hardship in a family or Mm -hmm. death, it can either pull families apart or bring them together. And in our family, I feel super fortunate that it swung, the pendulum swung that way. And, you know, the reality was up until that point, you know, my dad was the breadwinner and he was at the office a lot and I didn't have much of a relationship with him. I had a very good relationship with my mother, but dad was kind of the stranger and so the other silver lining to that whole thing was you know he stepped up in a major way for my brother and I my brother was 12 at the time and uh I was 15 and it really strengthened our relationship which was pretty great yeah and I can see after reading about that a lot when I think of you I think of you as a very open warm compassionate Mm -hmm. person and I would imagine a, a lot of that came from that experience but Mm -hmm. where did your romance with skiing begin was it in Switzerland well it was fun it was actually part of our school curriculum Uh, I think it was like on Wednesday afternoons we would all like get on a bus and drive a little ways and get on a gondola and you know go up two sections of gondola to this tiny little mountain I guess it was called Monte Tamaro and we would ski and and are you with American kids or Swiss kids. Swiss kids. Okay. So you're immersed in the culture. Yeah. Speaking fluent in Italian. Uh And and then over the holidays, my father and mother would take all of the kids that couldn't leave to go home, couldn't afford to fly home for Christmas, and would do a big ski trip to Austria. And we would go to Obergurgel and, you know, stay in a hotel there with all the college students and we would ski there. And so it just became part of my... Uh, it was what we did as a family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we moved to the States, being in Massachusetts, we were lucky enough to have like a little rope tow close to our house. So, you know, 
like a lot of kids that grew up in the Midwest or on the East Coast, you would shred a pair of gloves every weekend on the rope toe and build kickers and that was and ski around in your blue jeans Mm -hmm. (laughs) with your bandana around your knee or whatever that was (laughs) and um but it was really hard from massachusetts to go up and ski and we didn't have a you know a condo or access to a cabin up there but my dad did have a friend that lived in had a place in stowe vermont so you know, for a lot of years, it was like the one or two weekends of winter that we would be able to go and actually ski a real mountain. And, you know, I look back at it and I think there's such an advantage for East Coast skiers <laughs> or even Midwest skiers mm-hmm. is that you got to freaking want it. Right. <laughs> it makes you, you know, work, work for it mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's so subpar and it's so cold and it's so, you know what I mean? You really need to work for it. And mm-hmm. so obviously everything that you work hard for you're very passionate about so but yeah it's it's interesting when you go back in your life and you think what are the few defining moments what are the and you obviously don't know them at the time Mm -hmm. but when you go back and kind of take inventory you're like wow i would have never had any idea right wedging around that little place in switzerland that that it would become such a big part of my life. Right. You know? Yeah, it's the common thread for sure, right? Yeah. So did you go to college back east? And I did. I went to school, to college in Vermont, mm-hmm. little burner school in Vermont called Green Mountain College. In fact, I laugh because uh, the college has only gotten better and better and better. So, you know, you tell somebody you went there and they're actually somewhat impressed. Right. <laughs> At the time, it was like not I wasn't the strongest student I think I would excel at arts and you know dance and uh sports um and English and languages but Mm -hmm. you know when it came to math and science and history it was like my report cards would come back with like d's and a's you know yeah had a hard time applying myself to things that I wasn't passionate about right but skiing was a passion in college it was. Were you uh, racing? You know, it was the first time actually that I was able to get any lessons or coaching at all in my ski career. And I was lucky that I guess I had enough experience to actually step onto the ski team and race, you know. And it was D3. It wasn't, you know, like I w- we weren't racing against Middlebury or Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. But the coolest thing about it was to be able to actually break down skiing in a technical aspect. Right. And I never had the opportunity to do that before. It was just look at the people on the hill that you thought had great style and and emulate emulate that. Mm -hmm. And then how did you end up in Tahoe? I, you know, I ended up in Tahoe for love. And that's a two-part thing there in that I had been dating my boyfriend at the time for about a year and a half. And he graduated before I did. In Vermont. In Vermont. Mm -hmm. And I had a semester left. And, you know, at that point, we decided that we were going to make a go of it and and be together and live together. And, you know, I thought I'd want to move to Montana or Wyoming or Colorado. You know, those were the places in my mind that had mystique and had what I thought I was looking for. And he ended up coming out to Tahoe to race the mammoth downhill, the Mm -hmm. kamikaze. And we had friends from college that lived here, our good friend MC and my friend Tom Brand. And 
you know, within the first few days of being here, he had secured a job at Cyclepaths and had a place to live, which are kind of the two things in Tahoe that sometimes aren't the easiest things to do. And so he had decided to stay here. And I still had a semester left. Um, and I came to visit him and just fell in love with Tahoe. I guess the only place I'd ever been to in California was in LA. And that's not quite the vibe or the uh, place that I could ever see myself living. And so I kind of glommed all of California into that, mm-hmm. you know, Southern California feel. Um, and I fell in love with Tahoe. Right. Instantly. I love the the stories of how people get here and, yeah. and maybe more importantly, why. And it seems to be, I mean, it's obviously a magical place and people are drawn here for various reasons, but it's not a, uh, I think there's a lot of strong personalities that are drawn here. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered, you know, why that is. Maybe it's just on display because we're a smaller community and you see it more on a daily basis. And we see it more because of people who walk in the door of yeah. Alpenglow. But yeah, it's, it's always fascinated me why people are drawn here Mm because I was the same way yeah I had never even heard or even knew that there was skiing in Tahoe before I came came for one winter and stayed here (laughs) now whatever almost 20 years later but yeah it's a magical place it is it really is and I was blown away you know being from the east coast there's a certain culture um, and it's built on history. There's a Robert Frost poem that says, good fences make good neighbors. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the East Coast mentality. You know, you keep the fences up and you keep cordial, but never quite get into each other's space. Right. Is. And I remember the first week that I spent here in Tahoe, I was completely blown away by how open and friendly and almost oversharey right. it was coming from that other culture. Mm-hmm. Like, it can be said that there's a few different cultures in our country, you mm-hmm. know? And so that was an interesting one, you know, that it's very easy to get close to people very quickly, you know, with that attitude and those open, right. you know, but sometimes I remember working in Bethel um, at Sunday river mm-hmm. between high school and college. I worked on the ski patrol there. I was 19 years old, but you had to be like three generations from Maine before you were actually a local, right. you know, and here in Tahoe, you're a local if you've been here for a summer, or, right. you know what yeah, I mean? Totally. Just totally different. Yeah. If you still um, have your Vermont license, you're a local. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you got here, how, what was the transition into ski patrolling at Squaw? Well, it w- I was, I guess, pretty fortunate. This is a, actually a really funny story, but I came and talked to Bob Cushman, who was the patrol director at the time. I talked to him on the phone, Hans Burkhart. I'd bumped into him at a coffee shop a few times over the one week that I was here visiting Tom, my um, my boyfriend at the time. And he had given me the ski patrol director's number. So I called Bob and, you know, I told him what I'd done and you know, that I was an EMT and I told him I worked at Sunday River and there were actually two patrollers who I worked with that were at Squaw that I didn't actually realize. So they could vouch for me. And, you know, it sounded super hopeful. And I said, well, there's one thing I probably won't be able to be out there till the end of January. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a problem. I can't promise you anything, but certainly check in when you get here. And so I did what I thought 
would be good to do was just like the squeaky wheel. And so I would send them postcards and I'd send them letters like, hey, I just ran a marathon and did pretty well. And, you know, school's good, but super excited. (laughs) So we started this like pen pal relationship. And meanwhile, on the other side in the patrol office, unbeknownst to me, they're like, who is this crazy girl that is like (laughs) writing us postcards and letters? And so I did check in when I got out here and uh, Squaw had just started night skiing. It was the first year of night skiing. Mm -hmm. And I met them and they said, actually, we do have a position for you, but it would be coming on at night. I was like, that's great. Could ski all day. Yes. <laughs> it was actually the best job that I could have ever imagined because um, I think they realized very quickly that I, I could actually ski. And so they started pulling me on for avalanche control. <laughs> so without a ton of training, totally like greenhorn, I find myself on the roof in 70 mile an hour winds for my first day on avalanche control. Like first bomb I ever threw was like in a whiteout in 70 mile an hour winds, like right into the fire. But it was the best job because I would come in, do control work, ski around in my red jacket for two hours, go home, do laundry, go to the gym, go for, you know, bike ride, you know, upward canyon, and then go back to work, mm-hmm. have a full day of of work and have been able to ski pow and cut lift lines. It was yeah. pretty great. I know you worked as a patroller when you were young as well, but why, why do you think you were drawn to that, that profession? I mean, I know, I know you've done it for a long time, but by what you just said, you're very driven to, to acquire that position. Yeah. I think the thing that first started becoming like a need in me was this connection to nature. And I think, you know, I was in the outing club when I was in high school, and I would go hunting my with my dad in the early, early mornings before school. We'd go, go down to this blind and go duck hunting in the morning. And as a kid growing up, spent as much time as I could, like climbing trees and building forts and building jumps, you know, out of plywood for my little bikes. And being outside really made me feel connected, mm-hmm. made me feel grounded. And I think as a, in my character, I tend to operate at a high rate of speed. And I think it's weird, but you intuitively know what you need in your life. And I think I really, without knowing it, leaned into nature because it was so grounding and mm-hmm. because it it was out of that desire that really led me to like trying to find more time outside right and I remember when I finished college my dad was like you know what do you want to do now that you have your degree and I was like I don't ever want to be in a cubicle and I don't ever want to work inside if I can do that I'll be stoked right and I've been able to hold the cubicle at bay so far in my life, you know, at 48 years old. But yeah, I think that was it, was wanting to be outside. And as a patroller, you get to be in the elements and you get to feel Mother Nature's fury. And, you know, there's days when I think my personal best was like I was on the Palisades with two other friends of mine who I trust implicitly with my life, my friend Tom Walklow and John Weglars, who I have a great history with, but we were up on the Palisades and it was gusting to 118 miles an hour. Wow. And we were crawling with our skis and our poles, you know, strapped together and like crawling along the Palisades, but there was something so exciting 
and thrilling about feeling the power of Mother Nature in that way, you right. know, being pushed so far. You're um, alive. Yeah, yeah. And how fortunate to be able to, to experience that right, raw, with only, you know, Gore-Tex. Right. You're out in those elements. It was pretty, pretty cool. Right. So. What's rewarding about it for you? Besides the ability to, to exist outside. Yeah. There's something when we're needed. A huge part of our job is when things go really, really wrong mm-hmm. and people are in a really bad way to try and make it better, to try and save someone, right. to, um, to help. be, yeah, to be there for them and to help them through that has been a big one for me. To try and make order out of a like hor- horrifically scary or event right or dangerous event yeah because i see a common thread just you know in your life not only skiing of course but i see you as taking the path of being a professional athlete in many disciplines but also taking a the different path than say a you know traditional sponsored athlete where you're working in the environment and you're you're ski guiding and i think the the common thread there is you're you're helping other people throughout all of it yeah yeah. Yeah. What's what's challenging about patrolling? It's very physical. It's an incredibly physically de- demanding job. It's funny. I used to think that being small was a disadvantage. Um, and as I get older and I continue to be able to operate and wake up in the morning and not hurt, I realize that even though I'm, I'm doing the same job that a 200-pound, six-foot-three <coughs> friend of mine is doing, um, and expected to do the same and willingly want to do the same amount of work and carry the same things and lift the same things. I've been super lucky to be able to do it s- and still be able to move, right. you know, yeah. and still have the same equipment in my knees, you know. Um, so I feel very fortunate that way. But I think that's one of the harder ones is that it's a fi- very physically demanding job. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, you're an easy target for you know, skiers at the resort, Right. you know, um, and the hardest is, you know, I remember, uh, when my friend Andrew was killed on the headwall face mm-hmm. and we ended up shutting down Polson's gully. Here I am, like, can, I, can barely hold myself together because right. there is so much grief, you know, and Andrew was somebody that I started with, you know, we shared a locker my first year and he was like a brother to me and he just passed and was on his way to ICU in an ambulance. And a good friend of mine came up to me and got in my face at the top of Polson's gully about why it wasn't open, you know? Right. And I was like, ridiculous. I can't talk to you right now. Right. Like, here's the hand. Like yeah. I, you, you won't even understand how insignificant that question was to me right now. You right. know what I mean? Um, so there's those moments where you're just like, you're here on vacation. You're here enjoying it. Like, let's just keep things in perspective here. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't be an asshole is a good place to start <laughs> in life. <laughs> but I view Ski Patrol as a very kind of, you know, esteemed group of people. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine it's a very tight knit group and yeah. familial in nature. And with that comes great rewards. And then, of course, great challenges, too. You know, you literally put your lives in each other's hands every day. Um, you know, especially when we're out doing avalanche control work. 
in some pretty spicy conditions. Yes, there's a huge bond that comes from that. I sometimes feel like I have, you know, 60 brothers and uncles and, you know, and a few sisters. Right. And, you know, and then there's those beautiful moments where, you know, you're on a work run together and you're restaking the, the boundary of Granite Peak. You know, and it's it's that flow that you get into with people you've known a long time where there's no words that need to be said mm-hmm. and you operate as a team, you know. And then there's times when you're on a really bad wreck and you do become a team. And it's like, you know, somebody's the first responder and somebody comes in and you you don't even have to talk about what needs to happen. Everything falls into play. It's like a well-rehearsed <coughs> football team. You know, right. you yeah. know the play. Yeah. That's cool. And that's a that's a pretty special experience for sure. Yeah. And then you get to share these like unbelievably beautiful moments. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'll never forget we were doing avalanche control and it happened to be the anniversary of the day that we lost Andrew. Mm-hmm. And I was at the top of the slot with my friend Eric Lowell and somebody came on the radio and said, we're going to start a moment of silence. And we all lit shots at the same time. And, um, you know, it was a tribute to him. Mm. And the sun was coming up. You know, you're at the top of the slot and the sun's coming up over the, the east side of the lake. And those moments of silence just sitting there beholding the beauty, feeling the pain, you mm-hmm. know, with somebody that you've worked with for maybe seven years, right. maybe 10 years, maybe 20. Yep. And I think enough bad things have happened with our patrol that have like really, again, like getting back to what I was saying about, you know, families and tragedy mm-hmm. is it can pu- pull people together. Right. And it surely has. Right. Yeah. And, To that point, I think it's really great that I've started seeing more women Mm -hmm. in this field and that I've been able to be a woman on a crew that's mostly men. But I think when I've seen the tragedies happen on our patrol, like Andrew's death or even Joe's death, it's almost like the female element allows for the show and expression of emotion right it kind of enables our whole crew to really you know what i mean instead of like the shoulder punch you got this here's a shot of whiskey Mm -hmm. you know it's like i'm gonna grab a hold of you and i'm gonna hug you and you can cry on my shoulder and it's all good right and it just just it's not i wouldn't say it's because of that female but it it certainly helps encourage that that's already there in in the men that i work with right you know a lot of these guys are dads and they've witnessed all sorts of beautiful things and have had tears over their own children and have felt great joy and like these guys are big burly men but Mm -hmm. they express themselves really well but i think it 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 gives if that makes any sense at all totally it gives that it's okay to show that and feel that makes it a little softer yeah yeah. Approachable maybe for the mm-hmm. gruff dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at how people grieve, that's been a very interesting study for me is to understand how people grieve. But it's it's really opened that door for part of that grieving process. And I think a huge part of grieving is being able to communicate how you feel and processing those emotions. Right. You know, and yeah. putting a word to them or, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the lost thing is we talk about it at length, and I think, yeah, it's a good one because we're all humans. Yeah. We all do it differently, but has your has your relationship with the profession changed over, what, 25 years now, right? Yeah. You know, it's what I've always loved about patrolling and guiding is that, you know, and oftentimes people ask the question, like, how is it to be a female and a male-dominated, you know, and mm-hmm. it's whatever it's a good question and it's a very pertinent question but the thing that i've always loved most about the professions that i'm in is that you are judged or you you gain the respect by working hard having a good skill set you know it's not who you know or who you slept with or you know what i mean it's you need to step up and prove yourself Mm -hmm. you know what i mean right um and i've always seen that as a great challenge you know, and sometimes maybe the ladies need to prove themselves a little bit more. And I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, absolutely. You like yes. the challenge, yeah. Love the challenge. And let me see if I can convince you that I'm actually a really good teammate and I'm an asset and to you. And um, it's been a awesome, as I said, challenge. And I've really appreciated that mm-hmm. about it. You know, it's not where you went to college or who you know or. Yeah, yeah. it's earned. It's earned. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, and I think it's an interesting topic, too, because I would say, I would guess anyway, that you're probably at the, the kind of tip of the spear, the progressive side of being a female in a, in a you know male-dominated industry, not only in the patrol world, but also the guiding world, right? And, <clears throat> and you've been in it since the Wild West days of both Squaw and... Alaskan yeah, heli guiding, right? Like, yeah, there was some wild westing for sure. Yeah, I mean that the late '90s, early 2000s. That's mm-hmm. like Doug Coombs free yeah. skiing, you know, bonanza up there, right? And yeah. and kind of that new chapter of heli access terrain. What were those lessons along the the way there? In that kind of like, I mean, you spoke to a little bit in a in a male dominated or at least male skewed yeah um, profession. Well, I think in both of those professions. It's incredibly important to have mentors. When our rookies come into our patrol, I'm like, you just need to be a sponge. Yeah. (laughs) You just need to soak it up. And if you can find somebody who is passionate about teaching you things, it is unbelievably important to grab onto those coattails. And I was incredibly lucky to have some amazing mentors. And... Well, not interestingly enough, but, you know, they all were men. And I feel super, super fortunate that these men saw some kind of, saw some desire in me or saw some willingness to to be the best that I could be and actually helped me along the way, gave me opportunities. Our ops manager at Chugach Powder Guides was this incredible man, Frank Coffey, who ran the snow safety program in Portillo. He also ran the snow safety program at Crested Butte, and uh, he was an incredible snow science guy. And uh, he would give me things, as a young guide, would give me things to read at night, you know, papers from the ISSW, and would take the time to critique me on my guiding style and was very passionate about his job, but they're natural mentors and there's people that it just doesn't appeal to. It's just got to be something that's innately in them. You know, uh, Russ Johnson, who was our head of snow safety at Squaw, was a huge advocate and a, a dear, dear friend, but he took me under his wing. 
you know, and really encouraged me and, you know, gave me opportunities to be the ethics chair on the American Avalanche Association board and kind of brought me into the fold. So, you know, that mentoring thing is huge. And as I've been in it longer, I've realized that I want to see people succeed. And Mm -hmm. if people are into it, I'm super passionate about mentoring other people right. and setting them up for success. Paying it forward. Yeah. 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 It's it's helped keep things fresh for me mm-hmm. to impart whatever limited experience I have in the time that I've been doing it. You Come know? on. <laughs> <laughs> and all the huge mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Share with them the huge mistakes right. so that maybe they won't make the same ones. Right. Yeah. We talk about it. It seems like with every guest, but I don't know if that's because people are on their own journey, right? We're all, we're all doing walking life a little differently, but that there seems to be, if we can make it in the mountains, like meaning survive and not, um, you know, have accidents that there's some kind of guiding influence, right. In all of our lives that is a common thread among mountain people. Like there were influential people, there were mentors who were generous enough to help and kind of steer you, or at least let you meander in the right direction of your, of your life. Mm-hmm. Were there any other mentors? Dave Hamry, who is an Alaskan, he uh, most recently was the head of the Alaska Railroad and one of the owners of Chugach Powder Guides when I uh, started there. He's been a huge mentor. He's been kind of my guru that I go to when I bump into huge challenges and grief. Mm-hmm. And for an incredibly accomplished, very macho, you know, alpha male that he is and highly respected in the industry when tragedy would happen. Or, you know, when I was forecasting at Squaw and I made a underestimated the snowpack and, you know, had a near miss where we had a post-control release or something like that. He was really instrumental in kind of helping me through the emotional aspect of it and understanding. I'll never forget this. When I did my avalanche level three in 2000, it was in Girdwood with Rod Newcomb and his son, Mark Newcomb, who used to own the American Avalanche Institute. They were, they're legends. Hamry did a talk about a fatality that had happened under his watch. They had had a historical storm that shut the Alaska Highway between Girdwood and there's tons of slide paths between Turnigan Pass and uh, Anchorage. And they had done a bunch of heli bombing, riddled the place. And he gave the okay for one of the DOT guys to start clearing the highway with a loader. And an avalanche came down and swept his good friend in the loader into Turnigan Arm, and Mm. he was killed. And that had just happened. And he was brave enough to actually come and talk to our level three course and do a case study and, and really talk earnestly about what it was like to have that job and make those calls and how to process all of that. And I was incredibly impressed. But so, yeah, he's been my Yoda, uh, like kind of my emotional, professional Yoda mm-hmm. um, and has been hugely valuable that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I know uh, I know you derive, obviously, a lot of fulfillment and happiness from guiding and patrolling. But mm-hmm. does that find its way into other aspects of your life, non-professional 
aspects. So I I think of the ski patrol guiding communities as this very tight knit kind of brothers and sisters in arms kind of thing where um, there's an understanding there of what you do and, and how you do it and the discipline and commitment and, and, and whatnot to the lifestyle. But are there things that you've learned throughout your career in those professions that you've then taken to your whatever relationships or personal life? I don't think I've I've had more experience. Those those two professions have really taught me humility in a very powerful and beautiful way. And that humility in doing the job well and making good decisions and that kind of thing is one thing, but humility when it comes to treating ourselves with compassion, treating other people with compassion. Those are, I think, have been huge lessons that I, you know, until you just ask that question, I haven't actually made that link ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being able to work in that natural element has taught me great humility, for sure. Right. Yeah. You know, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I, when I think of you, whether it's, you know, I think my own personal interaction with you, whether it's in the, in the shop or, you know, at events or, you know, I remember specifically running into you at the, the post office before I took my level two and just asking your input because you're so accomplished and esteemed in the community and giving me tons of beta and, and mm. uh, the time that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't give to a young kid basically Mm. so do you think there's a need to connect with people in those professions whether it's with your fellow staff or family or with the with the client I think about it in terms of guiding um because it 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 is a very special relationship that you gain with people you know I feel incredibly honored Mm -hmm. to be able to have these beautiful pinnacle experiences with people and it kind of bonds you in a in a very different way than it would in in other professions right you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think you see it most beautifully in the european tradition um and i get to see it a lot firsthand because a european client will come with his own guide who he's known for 35 years mm-hmm. you know there's this particular relationship between a guide and one of my clients both incredibly lovely people, but they've seen each other through deaths of children, through divorces, through deaths in the mountains. For 35 years, they've been sharing that those right. experiences together. And it's, it is a client relationship with a guide, but still it, it blurs those boundaries. You know, they're in essence family members. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We do have these bonds as mountain people right. in our tribe. And they're, mm-hmm. they're tremendously fulfilling. Yes. As a woman, how do you feel about the Me Too movement? It's, I think it's really, really important. You know, they say this is the, what is this? This is the time of like female empowerment Mm. in the universe. And, you know, in terms of coming back around to, you know, it's been on the, you know, on so many different levels, spiritual levels, chakra levels, you know what I mean? Um, You know, we've been operating out of this, uh, third chakra, you know, where we are making, we are manifesting, we are, you know, asserting our power. Um, 
And, you know, I see this big shift to moving into the heart chakra. And you see it in little bubbles here and there. We're obviously, given our current political situation and presidency, we're very much in the third chakra Mm -hmm. in parts. But I'm continuing to see this beautiful move into the heart chakra and people living more in that heart space and people Mm -hmm. being called from all sorts of parts of the world into that space, you know? And I think um, not standing for this whole, you know, movement about honoring th- that is, is huge. And it seems very positive to me. You right. Know? Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm curious on your take on it because you've carved out a very well-respected and esteemed career 20 years ahead of the curve, so to speak. I was really fascinated when we sat down with Hillary because I asked her about it and she had a very interesting response that was that she had mixed feelings about it because um, in many ways it's it's been a, a help in her career you know to be the first woman to do x y and z but I I also asked her you know you're one of less than 30 people who have both climbed Everest and Lhotse in one day and I asked her did it bother you when people referred to it as the first woman she was the first female to do it or just one of less than whatever at the time 10 people so I think your perspective is really insightful because you've carved out a niche for yourself and you're a, a veteran there but for those those folks who don't understand that heart chakra can you elaborate on that a little bit well I just you know as I said I am super, super grateful to have had so much support around me, male support around me and encouragement and, you know, have never felt, um, in fact, any kind of pushback I've ever felt is from clients, potential clients. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you show up and introduce yourself and they're like, oh, you can just see it come across their face. Oh, shit. I got the like five foot two girl guide damn it you know be great to to record their expression at the end of the day after they've been crushed (laughs) (laughs) yeah and without making a big deal about it you just go out and try and out ski them and again it's like a great challenge it's like okay gentlemen we're gonna have an awesome day and i'm pretty sure that i'm gonna be able to make you really tired and we'll have a beer at the end and i'm pretty sure that we're gonna be okay and then (laughs) i can we can arm wrestle and you lose too But we see it at the store, you know, and it, it kills me because we have really amazing women who work at the store and they're just as accomplished and in some cases more accomplished than the men. And you'll see the customer walk in and have that same recognition or even worse, ignore the woman outright and, and go right to the dude or ask for Jeff or me yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I think we're making strides, yeah. but we've got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody's got their different style. And it's not my style to stand up and make a lot of noise about it. I would prefer to do it the way that I've done it on the patrol. Lead is through just example. Lead through example. Work hard and have that show for itself. Right turn that over have the change be made within the individual that has those perspectives right you know what I mean um and that has seemed to work well for me and it resonates really well for me is I don't need to make a big deal out of this but I'm just going to do my best and you know I had a a, was having a great discussion with um with my boyfriend and we were talking about the samurai 
you know, spirit of, of perfection mm-hmm. and you do it for yourself. Right. You know, everything in your life you do with that same intention. Right. In perfection, not so that you'll get the accolades or get the... And they be- come naturally when you yeah. lead that way, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. yeah, certainly. So that's always spoken to me. And so, yes, the Me Too movement is important, but I don't know that you'll find me, you know... With the bullhorn. Yeah, with yeah. the bullhorn out there. Yeah, I respect that. I've read you like to operate on gut feel or instinct when you're working. Why do you think that is? Is that a uh, function of the profession? Or how you're just how you're wired? I think so, but I also think that you start tuning in with your senses and your intuition by recognizing patterns in the environment that you work in. I guess you asked a question earlier about what did these things what have these professions given you? And the one thing that's been interesting is to to really come to trust my intuition. And to discern what's fear, what's actually grounded in fact, and to to trust that a little more. And I've taken what I've learned in the mountains and how I make decisions and operate in the mountains and and really tried to, to cultivate a trust with that, but also have more recently started to do that in in my life Mm -hmm. when it comes to relationships or it comes to things that I'm being called to, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. And I think I view myself in the same way that at least in my mind, I see you operating in the world and think we're alike in the, in the sense that we, we give a lot of ourselves Mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. But then there has to be a time of self-reflection of maybe why that is, or Mm -hmm. taking care of ourselves on the, on the back end to make sure we're honoring who we are as people. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, an interesting uh, lesson for me that's come in the last year is been, and actually it started as a, it started as a New Year's resolution, you know, and I, in the last four or five years, you know, had a failed relationship, you know, I was, uh, ended up getting a divorce from the man that I was with for 22 years of my life, which was at the time, at 44, half of my adult life with the same person right. and growing with that person and creating a life and career with that person. And when you have failures in your life, you have the opportunity to take stock in what you own in that, what mistakes you might have made, what oversights you might have had because those are the that's the only thing that you can actually change you're never going to change yeah you're never going to change somebody else but you can affect change in yourself so I saw the uh, loss of my marriage and that 22 year relationship as a incredibly fertile ground for me to take some inventory at 44 years old Mm -hmm. on who I was and how I operate and how, what are the things that I bring to my personal relationships with friends and family and lovers. Right. I realize that I've made a whole life, you know, we talked earlier about my mom dying when I was younger. And I think one of the infinite moments, again, you never realize at the time what that split second was that's been such a defining factor. But I think that somewhere in my little 15-year-old psyche, I was like, you have to be strong. Mm-hmm. 
you have to be the one that like holds things together, you know, and gosh, wow. Yeah, you spoke to it, patrolling, guiding, you know, taking care of people, kind of the seed was born in that moment of realization. Doing my inventory, you know, during my divorce, it was like, wow, being the strong one has really had you create this kind of armor and self-reliance. And my New Year's resolution, long story short, a number of years ago was to be more vulnerable and explore what that actually meant Mm -hmm. in my life. And um, ironically enough, I had a situation last summer where I, out of nowhere, became incredibly depressed. And I never felt anything like that in my entire life. And I think we talked about it earlier that there's tools that have served us incredibly well our entire life, you know, and I had these tools of resilience and try to see the positive out of it and grin and bear it and push through it and fake it till you make it Mm -hmm. and really use a, a very forceful style to to work your way through adversity mm-hmm. or f- emotional pain right and this experience although incredibly painful and poignant to me and ironically it's like the universe answers your prayers always <laughs> and when i finally had the re- realization that this experience was like tearing down every bit and that I was as vulnerable as I could possibly be and that none of the tools that I'd used before in my life were working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It became very, very clear that I had to surrender. Right. Um, And I realized that I needed to have like staunch faith and surrender in order to get through this experience. And it was really powerful, but it was incredibly different than anything I've ever had to do in my life. I was being asked to do something that I didn't know how to do. Right. But you taught yourself how to cope. Yeah, and breathe and open to it. And that whole concept, I've done some reading of Pema Chodron over the years, and this beautiful Buddhist um, belief of non-attachment. Mm-hmm. And it was like the ultimate of that was just to breathe into that like paralyzing anguish and grief, you know, right. and that desire to just not feel that ever again. Right. Yeah. That was very frightening and very, very dark and so foreign to me. Right. Well, I think failure, it's a pejorative term, right? And it's been really refreshing for me. Uh, in the last few years to hear people talking about failure as in a positive light, in an instructional light and not in a negative light. I think that goes hand in hand with someone like yourself being willing to talk about acute depression or anxiety. And it's a big part of why I find these conversations so fulfilling is that someone in the outside world knows Leltone as the rock star ski guide and ski patroller and and free skier and mountain biker and go down the line. Right. But we all have our shit Mm -hmm. and we all, and it's never easy. And it's, you know, the person walking down the street has it rough and you might not realize that. And it's been refreshing, I think for people to embrace that. And like you said, speak openly about it so Mm -hmm. that we can grow as people 
and also help others by putting that into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the other beautiful, beautiful thing that ha- came from that experience, because I'm still debriefing it, you know, sure. it's fairly... You probably re- always will be. F- yeah, fairly recently. And so, you know, it is in my nature. And when I finally started to come out of that darkness, I recognized who I have known myself to be, you know, who actually can pull apart the beautiful pieces of it, who can see the, the bits of light shining through that dark hole. Um, but one of the more beautiful things, and I felt this in my life through the death of friends, through my divorce, is that we are so incredibly loved. Mm-hmm. I've felt that in my family, obviously, and I've certainly felt that in my friend group to be held by your community like we know everybody that's lived in Tahoe long enough knows that feeling of being held Mm -hmm. in their grief we have gone through it as a community here in Tahoe time and time again sometimes seemingly relentlessly Mm -hmm. and so I know when I speak of that there are a lot of people that that resonates with but through this experience and having to be vulnerable and having to uh, surrender, I was able to actually feel how incredibly loved we are in a bigger sense. Mm-hmm. By your In a people. spiritual sense. Oh, okay. No, yeah. in the next level sense. Mm-hmm. Again, talking about that intuition. And I think the only way I could describe it is when you listen to somebody speak from the heart and you recognize that, you feel your own heart rise to that Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense at all when you hear somebody speak truth you know it you feel it you can read through the bullshit and you know that that you're getting to the center of it that's what it felt like for me to feel that love call it god call it all those beautiful spirits that have left you coming to support you Mm -hmm. but i felt it almost as if you would feel you know table I'm putting my hand on right you know yeah and that was a beautiful thing right an incredibly beautiful thing and I don't think I would have been able to feel that had I not gone through that experience had that challenge yeah and I think too I think for me vulnerability is a sign of strength Mm. right to to be open to breaking down your life or like you said taking inventory and who you are after a traumatic experience Mm -hmm. and and that I think if we're willing to embrace it leads to growth, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. And I, I think the beautiful thing, and I, I realize this, I actually sometimes I'm like, wow, I can't believe at 15 years old I had that, that epiphany came to me. And, you know, of being the glue. No, of this realization that I'm about to tell you. And it's, I remember, have you read any Tony Robbins? Mm-hmm. He talks about these moments of grace. And these moments of grace aren't you. But they are moments of divine grace and intervention. And again, that love, that perspective. But in having him explain it and hearing about it, I was like, when I look back on this, I remember at a certain point when my mom died, having this realization that like, you have a choice here. You can lay down, stop eating, sleep all day, curl up in a tiny ball of yourself, see it as unfair and devastating or you can stand up feel the light on your face grow become stronger and take all of that 
to be bigger, better, faster, stronger. Mm-hmm. And at 15 years old, that didn't come from me. <laughs> that came from that grace that was gifted to me, that perspective, you know? Right. And that's been a huge one for me over the course of my life. It's been kind of just my mantra. I don't know if ethos is the right word, but it's kind of that foundation that I choose to see my life through. You know what I mean? That lens. Well, and I love your quote. I think I read it in Megan's article. You can let this thing crush you or you can grow from the experience, come to grace and find the beauty. So your mom, she'd passed away when you were 15, but... Like you said, you're just the conduit to something bigger. And I think it's probably safe to say that's influenced your entire trajectory through life, right? Who you are and and what you're compassionate about and who you're compassionate about. But do you think your life would have taken a different path had that not happened? I mean, that's an obvious fork in the road, right? Absolutely. Um, I sometimes, you know, over the years I've entertained that. I I was a punk ass. I was like right in the throes of being an adolescent teenager Mm -hmm. and I was defiant and I was drinking and I was stealing and I was like, I guess just stretching my little ego and feeling into myself and who knows if that would have been the trajectory, but it certainly asked me to step up to my life when the one person that you think that will never leave you does. Right it asked of me to stand up and be accounted for. Right. You know, and, and I sometimes look at that because I, I, and then this is a judgment on myself, but you know, people that know me well, I tend to be, tend to be serious and, you know, controlled. And, you know, um, I think there was a certain uh, childish uh, abandon that had to be squelched in order to stand up and be present and take care of my brother and drive him to soccer games and be there for my dad and Mm -hmm. be that person that I needed to be at the time. Uh, That playful, goofy kid, you know, kind of had to, had to go somewhere else for a while. And so I think one of my little uh, lessons for myself is to try and come back to that. Right. Try and like find that little inner child again and bring them out mm-hmm. into the light. You know, right. I've had some energy work done with friends and, you know, it sounds super kooky, but yeah. I'm down with it. It's, tr- <laughs> it's so, I think more people need to learn about it. Yeah. Try um, to get, try to, to encourage that young, playful child to come out, you right. know, and yeah. certainly I'm silly. I can be very silly and right. I, uh, especially with the people that I'm really close with. But, you know, I, I recognize that, right. you know, and I embrace it. It's like having compassion for yourself. It's like, oh. I need course. to do that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's why it is. But it's okay to, yeah, and not be uh, your harshest critic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you your harshest critic? I think so. I tend to be. And that was another another thing that didn't serve me, you know, when I was in my hole um, was... Like, you shouldn't be here. Right, it's your fault. You're stronger than this. Right. I can't believe that this is all you're talking to about your friends. Everybody's so sick and tired of hearing you, like, speaking from the hole, you know? Like, ugh. And I I realize that, God, there's so much judgment, and that's not going to do anything for me. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Allow it. yourself to be loved. Allow yourself to speak your truth. 
and don't judge yourself. Mm-hmm. And just, it was part of that surrender being in that place right. without judgment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's good stuff. You know, I myself has spent an, uh, an entire lifetime living in this body and operating in this body. You understand your resting heart rate and you know what to eat and you know the diet you need and you know how you can perform your best and when you're bonking or when you're about to bonk, etc. Right. But how much do we know about our inner workings? Yeah. So I see my path starting and in, in really continuing to explore that part. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, and I, it, 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 it's interesting, too, to me um, to have read that, you know, you named a a line in Alaska after your mother and mm. what I find and you know I found it's a common thread amongst the people that we've chatted with is that when you're out there on a peak or when you're out there watching an epic sunrise those people that we've lost and love seem to be there in some mm. context you know do you mm. find that with your mother too absolutely absolutely and I think that situation that you just spoke of when we are in those moments, we are incredibly present. We are incredibly grounded in that very, very moment. We are incredibly conscious in our being. So when we're in that place, I think that's where we feel that the most. Right. There's no noise. There's no Instagram feeds. There's no like argument with your boyfriend or girlfriend. There's no, you are incredibly grounded in that beautiful moment taking in like the miracle that is our life. Right. And when we can be in that moment, we can feel that presence. Yeah. But it's there all the time, you know? And that's, yeah. I think, what I was getting at yeah. when that feeling incredibly loved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I think I read a beautiful quote about the gift of the body by Jonathan Goldman. And it talks, it speaks of people calling light in the world. Mm-hmm in Christianity and the most beautiful forms of Buddhism. And you can tell when people are calling light, you know, when people are working light in the world. And you can certainly see when that light is not being called. And we we see that a lot in our day and age. Yes, particularly now. (laughs) But I think the beautiful thing is that we are all calling that, but we're calling it different names, you know? Yeah but it's still the same essence. Right. I just recently had learned of your separation, but I knew, of course, that you were close with Joe, well, Andrew and then Joe, and then it sounds like another friend from 17 to 18 were killed. Mm-hmm. And that that's a big run of tough times. You know, I remember when I was young saying, uh, t- talking with my dad and him saying, you know, love your life now because you have no regrets and you have no real hardships but life gets more difficult the older we get you lose people they're killed they get sick whatever so it's it's cool for me to hear you look at that chain of events and take a dive from it uh, as anyone would but then bring yourself back to to life Mm -hmm. and grow from it Mm -hmm. yeah it's probably challenging yeah we will lose in choosing this life that we have, you know, I'm sure Hillary can speak to it as well, given the life that she's chosen. But, you know, certainly we will lose people in this. Coming to peace with that is important. You know, and I guess for me, you know, cause one of the questions that I'm asked is, you know, you live a very risky life, you know, <coughs> flying in helicopters and 
ski cutting avalanches and working with explosives and stuff like that. But I think there's always been this like ingrained belief that I've either convinced of myself or is kind of guided by the experiences and my my perspective through that. But that when your number's up, it's up. And it's certainly there's a lot we can do to live safer lives. But, you know, I have this philosophy that we're given a certain amount of lives. Mm-hmm. You might be given three. I might be given five. Next person might be given 10. And we certainly know when we've burned through one of those, but we're never quite certain how many we have, how right. many of those little get out of jail free tickets we have. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why spend your life worrying about that? Right. You know? It's up when it's up. It is up when it's up. And you could be walking across the street in Tahoe City. Right. You know? That's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> right. Be the best that you can. Right. The best version of Show yourself. Show up every day for yourself. Yeah. Most importantly. Yeah. But for other people, most obviously. Right. Yeah, and try to be the best that you can and have compassion. Because as you said, everybody's walking their walk. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea. Right. But the one incredibly beautiful thing, again, that I go back to is that you aren't, you're not alone in this. No. Even when you feel most isolated and most in your own head. Right. You know, and that your pain is only your pain. It's not. Right. Yeah. yeah. A major topic that we always talk about is risk management as a guide how this it's obviously integral in your profession but how do you approach it you plan and prepare for the worst and the best Mm -hmm. and that's huge having a clear understanding of your objective whatever that may be and being prepared is huge it's huge it's why we do guide meetings and why we have morning meetings in our patrol and that's a huge component of it um i think the most powerful lesson that i've had in learning how to check my ego and finding all those beautiful lessons of humility over the years where i've just fucked it up you know Mm -hmm. huge lessons of humility were that there's always another day if you're lucky and that, I guess that drive for me to push through the end goal has softened greatly. Mm-hmm. And if things don't feel right and the moment's not right, or there's any question, you shelve it and go back at a, on another day. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that actually answers your question at all, but that's been the hugest one is to soften around that like ego-driven, obsessive, right. single-mindedness. Right. Because I'm sure over your career, you've had close calls and narrow misses, right? Like we all have. Thousands. Yeah. (laughs) I've run through quite a few of my cards, my get out of jail free cards. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Do you feel you're wiser because of it? Because of those experiences? I hope so. I hope so. I'm one of those people. And I think I say this when I'm teaching my avalanche courses. I'm one of those learners that really doesn't get it until I get it super wrong. The most valuable learning I get and the best tools for learning are when I don't do it right. (laughs) And so I actually just tell that story because I want people to feel good about being comfortable about not getting it right in this class, you know. And I don't know if there's a lesson in life there or not, but there probably is. But um, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, no one's perfect. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we get it wrong more than we get it right yeah yeah but if we're open to 
learning from those wrongs, then ideally we evolve as humans. Absolutely. Does the risk management differ in your personal life versus your professional? Meaning like if you're out with a bunch of friends skiing versus if you're guiding clients, or do you have a a particular kind of equation for for safety and, and risk mitigation and things like that? I believe I have it similar across the board. The difference is, and I came, I actually had an experience my first year guiding at Points North where that da- was like Dax nine, Willard. 99 or 2000? 99. Yeah. Dax Willard <laughs> and Sig and Justin Roach and I were skiing together and mm-hmm. I was guiding them. You're guiding your friends, right? Right. But Dax went for a huge ride. Mm-hmm giant ride lost all of his gear been a vocal in half snow snow ranger been in half and i remember thinking oh my god i don't want this i don't know if i want to i don't know if i want this job Mm -hmm. i don't want to ever have to go to dax's parents and have to look them in the eye you know what i mean and the magnitude of quite literally having people's lives in your hands i I really had to think long and hard on that as to whether the, that was a job that I was cut out for. And obviously, I came around to that, but it needed to be a very conscious decision right. that you're not out there skiing pow out of helicopters, mm-hmm. throwing beer cans, you right. know? You're, it's a pretty serious job. Yeah. And hopefully there's a little bit of pow skiing and beer can throwing. Oh, there's plenty <laughs> of that. There's certainly days yeah. for that. But you obviously embrace the the lifestyle so the, the yeah. pros outweigh the cons absolutely even if there's tragedy when i'm recreating with friends it's more of a team decision yeah. and it's 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 definitely encouraging as we talk about in the level one good group speak and good communication is huge and that's where we can kind of forego a lot of those human factors is mm-hmm. actually by being very honest with each other and calling each other out and right. speaking our truths. Yeah. So I think that happens more frequently when you're out with your friends. And sometimes that gets sticky. Sure. <laughs> sometimes actually, actually it's more problematic. It's mm-hmm. very linear when you're guiding people. It's your decision. Right. You know, when I'm out with guests and clients, you're making the calls. Right. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. all on you. Right. I think that's, in our world, a, a really hopefully good byproduct of the gender scale being balanced where we can hopefully avoid a lot of issues in the backcountry if we have women in our group who, who then feel more empowered to speak up. And I know it's a big deal with, with your safe as clinics. Yeah. And I love that work. Like the, I become incredibly passionate in the last 15 years in education, right. avalanche education. In fact, teaching in general is I didn't realize that I'd ever be that passionate about it, but I really am. Right. Yeah. And so I think getting women together in a comfortable environment and, you know, what Elise and Jackie and Ingrid and Michelle, you know, really steered for was having that space for women to know their shit, own their shit, be able to communicate, you know, confidently and not follow or let other people make decisions for them, but right. to actually feel empowered and comfortable. Like, no, I got this. Right. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I bring everything back. Of course, I think most people do to your, to your own sphere. Right. And, and I'd like to think that I'm a driven and accomplished person, or at least 
doing what fulfills me personally. But I, I look at my wife and think like I'm a complete shadow compared to the strength that she has, mm. you know? So I think it's, I think it's a timely thing for men to reflect on that, right? Like behind every good man is a better woman. Aww. Like that saying exists for a reason. That's very sweet. So it's nice that there's a landscape there. Mm-hmm. Just to speak to that and mostly just for all the women that might be listening to this to find great gratitude in it. But I think I often stop totally bewildered that I was fortunate enough to be born, number one, as a woman, but most importantly, as a woman in this day and age, in this country. Right, now. Now, to be able to do what I'm passionate about, to have no obstructions other than really what's like what I want to accomplish. You know what I mean? I mean, I could be born in a totally different place in a totally different time. And so I am incredibly grateful and it, it does not escape me frequently at how blessed I am in this day and age to be a woman in this time. Right. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're big on gratitude. How, how do and I try to implement that into my daily life, but how do you how do you work with that? I think it's in my makeup. Mm-hmm. I think it's in my genetic makeup. But I do feel that the more that you can channel that presence, a lovely book that I've read in the recent past is The Power of Now, mm-hmm. Tolle's book, The Power of Now. And it feels like the more you can ground into that present moment, the more you can actually be here now right uh not being pulled by fears of stuff that could happen um you know or whatever other anxieties you can create in your own mind once you drop into that present moment Mm -hmm. you realize that that's all you have you have such gratitude for that right i think you can actually take in wow look at the way the light hits that tree you know what I mean? Yeah. It can bring you to tears if you really think about like the, the miracle of what is happening around you, mm-hmm. you know? If you're open to looking. Yeah. 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 If you can just sit quietly in yourself. And I think that's why there's such an incredible movement in meditation, which mm-hmm. I love, which yeah. makes me so happy is that, again, there's that pull, people channeling light. Yeah. You know, and how do we link to that in our lives and how meditation and stillness is really giving people tools to be in that present moment. You know what I mean? And hopefully feel that gratitude or come around to that. Right. Yeah, it's powerful if we... Stop the noise. Yeah, and and are willing to tap into it, right? Yeah. Just another thing on the gratitude thing, a tool that can be used. I remember my brother shared this with me um, when he was going through some things and he said even just a great uh, tool, whether you're having troubles in your marriage or you're just in a funk and you need to get yourself into your best self, you know what I mean? Because we certainly fall into not our best selves a lot, Mm -hmm. is just to actually spend some time, take the exercise of writing down five things, ten things, that you're grateful for. Every morning or every night before you go to bed to reset that. Right. You know, a lot of people do it. I think I try to do it when, when it comes to me. But, you know, before you start eating dinner, right, it doesn't need to be grace. It can be, what 
everybody here at this table, like, what is it that you're incredibly grateful for right now? Right. You know? Yeah. No, it's a powerful exercise. But yeah. just to be more aware of that gratitude right. in your life. Yeah. Yeah. To turn the life switch off and maybe listen a little more. Mm-hmm. I've read you say that skiing is the thing that's kept your life together over all the years yeah and i think it gets back to what i said it's like what is the thread mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah and on a physical sense on a you know yeah those planks that you put on your my feet you know have had maybe a central theme yeah in where i've chosen to live you know yeah uh the career path that i've taken yeah you know what i mean my greatest joys all of that right yeah what would you do if you couldn't ski I think there would be gifts of the other gifts that you pull into your life to fill or replace or stretch you or bring you to that next stage of growth. Right. And I don't know that I would know how to answer that question directly right now. Yeah. But it would reveal itself. Right. Yeah. It's funny because I I ask most guests that there hasn't been anyone that's has had an a negative response to it, meaning like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't know what I would do if I couldn't climb or ski or run. Yeah, That's a part of who we are, but I've always felt like these accomplished type A personalities that exist in mountain towns are more than just that. So even Mm -hmm. if they couldn't do what they're passionate about, like you said, something else would fill that void. Mm -hmm. And it's always fascinating to hear what that is Yeah, or what that could be. Yeah. And I don't know that I could say I'm going to be a veterinarian, actually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could, I, I don't have a direct answer, Yeah. but I knew that I do know that it would reveal itself. You know, it's like, I think the thing that got me through my divorce, a mantra, you know, I know people like write stuff on their mirrors in their bathrooms or mm-hmm. they keep a piece of paper in their car or whatever. But the mantra that I would just say in my head when things were tough and change was difficult, you know, and you're going through all those growing pains and was that the universe will take care of you. Right. It always does. The universe will take care of you. Yeah. And have that faith. Right. And fake it till you make it. Uh-huh. Keep saying it. But the longer you say it, I had a friend that went through a divorce shortly after mine and I made a joke but gave him that tool and he tried it. And I just kept saying, you know, be... It might be three years. It might be five years. It might be next month. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the timeline is, but it will take care of you. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, life (laughs) is is fascinating how it evolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's the allowing part. Like the universe will take care of you if you allow it. Mm -hmm. If you let it. If you're open to it. If you let it. I mean, obviously, besides, you know, you know, you spoke to your, your your marriage and and losing friends, but are there other regrets that you have in your life, or or things that you've used as instructional tools? You know, other than that uh, dark place, that depression that I went mm-hmm. into last year, that showed me so many things. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there's that. What it, what it was, I don't even know the ad campaign, but no pain, no gain, mm-hmm. right? 
um, without pain there isn't growth. I read a beautiful quote at some point that said something to the effect that only the cracked ones let in the light Mm -hmm. and that all those fissures, you know, allow great light to either emanate out or pour in, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I think that's always been such a beautiful visual for me. Right. You know. Totally. To take those chinks in the armor, to take those cracks right you know? yeah and i i saw a movie recently i think it was a documentary and they talked about i think in asia it was like in china or japan when you break you know china they basically use gold to to put it back together oh, so wow. you have these beautiful you yeah. know just yeah. another visual to mm-hmm. have in that in terms of that right a physical representation yeah, yeah. yeah. where where's Leltone in 25 years <laughs> Hopefully still here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully not sore. Hopefully getting out of bed every morning with great gratitude. And hopefully much wiser than I am right now. You know, I look forward to more growth. I look forward to more hardship. I look forward to more beauty. Mm-hmm. Seeing incredibly th- incredible things being revealed in my life to me. Yeah, I guess that's where I see myself. Maybe think, on a beach somewhere. Yeah, I think that's always part of your equation, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I realize how many lessons, and I think just speaking to mountain people, which are mostly listening to this, is that I'm sure we all have learned so many great lessons from the mountains, Yeah. whether we're climbing them or skiing in them, or we've learned so many incredible things, both logistically how to operate in them, you know, but also about how to, how to navigate life and mm-hmm. lessons. But I, I know there's lots of lessons from the ocean. And I know that when I'm actually physically next to it, that it it feels so good to me. Right. There's an energy there. <laughs> yeah, there's an energy there. So one of my resolutions was to try and spend more time next to that medium and see what it has to teach me. Right. You know? That's great. <laughs> it's been a tremendous honor for me to walk down this path of kind of self-exploration mm-hmm. and and it's our kind of gift to whoever wants to listen and and that's why we don't want to sponsor and and whatnot um but it's a huge honor for you to take time to sit down and share your story mm-hmm. and be open with it so i'm tremendously thank grateful you. for that <laughs> <laughs> thank you Brendan. yeah thank you yeah. very much yeah I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Leltone. Our goal here at Afterglow is to give you a glimpse into the minds of some of the top mountain adventure athletes of our day. Lel's willingness to talk about vulnerability, compassion, and how we grow from difficult circumstances did just this. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Afterglow's production staff is a team of three. Miles Heaps was our sound engineer for episode two, and my wife, Kristen Hannah Madigan, edited Lel's conversation. The music of season three of Afterglow is generously provided by the Old String Duo. Make sure to check them out on Instagram to listen to more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. 
Season 3 continues on Monday, December 2nd with climbing photographer Jim Harrington. It's been one of my favorite conversations yet, and you don't want to miss his stories of traveling the globe on a shoestring budget over 20 years to capture historically significant climbing personalities.